if I'd love for you to get your Bibles out this morning, we're going to continue in our series around Colossians. And as I said, it's great to be here. Darlene and I recently um, were um, helping to host our Gather Conference in the United States, um, which was amazing. All of our different teams, they left Australia a couple of weeks later. We were all there in Los Angeles gathering together. Um, from there, I went there to help uh, host our Gather Conference in India, um, which was incredible, packed out auditoriums there and then come home um, for a three-day board meeting um, in Sydney for uh, the ACC, part of that leadership role there, and now back home. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Someone said to me, when's your next trip? I said, oh, next year. Don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. I'm very happy to be home, uh, sleeping in my own bed, um, eating my own eggs in the morning, um, and fixing all the broken things in the house, which has happened over the last three weeks. Hey, why don't we pray together, and then we'll get into the Word. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you, you are in the midst of your Word. You are in the midst of us gathering together, and I pray that you will speak to us so clearly this morning through your Word into each one of our situations. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Colossians, as I said, we're diving into over this next few weeks. Um, and this, this letter, this, you may have heard this phrase called epistle, which basically means letter. This letter um, is, they're claiming, was written by Paul and Timothy. Um, again, at the end of the uh, letter, this epistle, it actually says that Paul wrote this with his very own hand. But of course, Paul wrote many letters um, that made it to be part of the New Testament. And uh, some Bible scholars say that he wrote letters that didn't survive, that were deteriorated and didn't make it into the New Testament as well. But Bible scholarship says that there's no universal agreement that actually Paul wrote this particular letter. The one thing that we can clearly confirm is within this epistle, there's um, a collection of people's names. And it just so happens to be the same um, bunch of names that was written in the book of Philemon. So we can definitely confirm that whoever wrote Philemon, which many scholars would say it is the Apostle Paul, also wrote the book of Colossians. Are we all on the same page? Good, I just want to get you up to speed about where we are. Um, in every one of Paul's letters that he wrote in the New Testament, he was always placing a emphasis on a couple of issues within each different letter. Each letter is very different from when you read Romans to Colossians to Philemon. They're quite spread in their topics, but he is definitely going after something. Um, some of the things that he's going after, um, he discovered directly himself. In other cases around, and particularly in the book of Colossians, he discovered these things indirectly. Um, they were given to him, these thoughts or the challenges that this particular church was facing by one of his teammates, a pastor called um, Epiphas. I was, pretty, I was pretty happy about that. Um, 
I did research, I did Google, I did um, uh, press the YouTube, this is how you pronounce that name. Um, and Paul actually congratulates this pastor, this church, on the church that is bearing fruit and that the church was growing in their understanding of the gospel and they definitely were growing in their understanding of God's grace. This pastor um, of the church, Colossians, Epiphas. I just wanted to tell you I said it again. That wasn't the first time. wasn't a fluke. I can actually say it twice. Um, he was the pastor of this church, but Paul was actually engaging and bringing correction and encouragement to this particular church himself, even though he had never, Bible scholars say, actually been to this church. Um, in today's framework, in today's sort of structures, we would probably call Epiphas the campus pastor of a multi-site church and that Paul was the lead pastor influencing this church um, directly through these letters. I mean, letters were really then the uh, media of today. So every time you Instagram or you send an email, you can probably think Paul was writing a letter in his time. Now, he wrote, as I said, he would have written this epistle, this letter, um, for a reason. That was he wanted to challenge something in this particular church. Um, the obvious question that we must talk about then, I wonder what he, he wanted changed. I wonder what the desire was that he wanted to bring correction in this particular church. I mean, one uh, scholar would actually say that Paul was addressing the issue of the people hungry for more mystical elements in their faith that actually paralleled the pagan culture of the day. That there was a hunger within the church for the supernatural, but this hunger ended up um, going off the rails and actually looking for and chasing extreme experiences rather than chasing God himself. And Paul mentions it in this letter. He talks about the idea of angel worship, the idea of people completely focused on visions, these are the things that he's speaking against and actually bringing people back to the reality of Jesus Christ. He tries to redirect all of their energy in this church um, that they were having towards, as I've written, cosmic adventures. And um, the people were chasing a so-called... Um, that no one really discovered hidden spiritual mysticism. And if we think this is odd, you don't have to look too far. Even in today's society, people chasing mysteries that don't exist. I mean, he cuts across all of that and basically says, simply saying, look, the lordship of Christ is enough. That's what this whole book is about. He unpacks that Jesus Christ is the great mystery that the Old Testament actually alludes to and that the Gospels reveal. 
Jesus Christ is still in 2023 mysterious to us in our discipleship journey as we discover really what had happened when he crashed out of heaven into earth and affected our destinies and the direction of planet earth. That is the great mystery that many of us are still trying to wrap our hands around. So in chapter 1 of Colossians, we started there last week. I just want to, I suppose, speak to that a little bit. What's interesting about chapter 1 is that Paul, nowhere else in New Testament, actually um, writes or dictates a hymn. I mean, this is unusual for this guy. I mean, he is a Pharisee, a biblical teacher, and in chapter 1 is a song. Now... I don't know whether Paul was a songwriter. Um, That'll be for you to discover, for me to discover when we get to meet him in heaven. But he actually writes a song in chapter 1. I mean, the music and arts have always been such a profound effect on society and culture. They change or they can even enhance um, communities' thinking. I mean, uh, Katie spoke so profoundly about it. I don't know whether she was reading my message notes, um, but I wanted to speak to what she was emphasising this morning, that this idea of song can be a very powerful, maybe even a more powerful uh, communication tool rather than even books and, dare I say, teaching. I know there's many teachers in the room today. But the thing about music, the thing about song, is it actually bypasses your logic. It affects you, your thinking from the inside out. It actually enters into a different place and changes your thinking from the inside out. A well-written song or even a jingle um, um, can't be blocked from getting inside your head. And for any uh, parents here, as soon as I mention these two words, it will actually bring about a whole range of things in your head, and those two words are baby shark. (laughs) So it just goes to show how powerful music can be. Um, Let me take that a little bit further. I mean, there's been a recent, in in the last number of years, an amazing example of the success of music and how it's actually transferred generationally. If I want to point out to you that the Wiggles were recently doing live adult-only shows. It says that all of those years ago, and they're packed out, sold out, um, that the the parents who were playing Wiggles TV shows for their kids to entertain them while they did something else, the parents actually got affected, maybe even addicted to the Wiggles material, even though it was not even designed for them. The Wiggles were actually employing a technique that the Apostle Paul was using in Colossians chapter 1. 
to make the transfer of ideas more efficient. Because, as I said, songs and melodies are easily remembered and they have the potential to be very sticky. I mean, one expert suggests that singing is intimately linked in your memory, especially singing songs that are linked to meanings that are deep inside us. So I'm not quite sure what the deep meaning of hot potato and fruit salad is, but as soon as I mention those two phrases, everyone starts to, in the back of their brain, uh, hot potato, hot potato. There's even actions on the front row here. Well done, well done. But of course it suggests that we must then and should teach our kids to sing spiritual songs because singing those spiritual songs will enable those songs to travel generationally. But more importantly, it'll teach our kids the gospel message. It'll teach them good theology. I mean, one scholar paraphrases Paul's description of Jesus in this hymn in chapter 1, saying that he is the cosmic Christ who holds all things together. What a great picture. If Christ is then the cosmic cosmos, the complete cosmos, which means he is the beginning and the end, which he is, we know that, what is your part to play in this cosmos? Is it simply to escape this earthly time frame? And that would, to me, would seem like a, a selfish perspective. Could we consider that in these current times, no matter what the challenges are, no matter what the headwinds are, that we would be better to focus on our stewardship of the time that we have on planet Earth and the resources that we have been given and actually how do we utilise them best for God's kingdom? See, when we chase mysteries like the Colossian church did, we can fall into a trap of looking for stepping stones or looking for upgrades or looking for a faith expression to get better access to Jesus. It's our human nature. This is the most profound thing about um, the gospel of grace is there is no step there is no mystery, there is no upgrade, it is you just have to accept God's gift. Our human nature is always trying to figure out how to actually get more. How do I upgrade myself? How do I learn more? How do I go deeper? How do I discover a mystery that no one else has discovered before about God's kingdom? Clearly, the Apostle Paul is speaking in this epistle about the idea that all of this thinking, all of this effort, all of this energy directly competes against the thought that Christ is enough. Yet within the hymn, it does unpack for us that our God and his working are mysterious. But again, we must avoid 
worshipping the mysteries and actually worship Christ himself. Again, so why chase mysteries when we have complete access to Christ? Because Christ is enough. Yeah, you can talk back to me, it's quite okay. If Paul was under a character limit in his writings, all of these chapters within Colossians, I mean, he, I mean, he had to write these out by hand these days. You know, we've got um, platforms where you can only have so many characters that you can actually send your message across the planet Earth. Again, this whole letter, he would have, he would have actually just written at the very start of, of Colossians, he would have written, Christ is enough, letter done. <laughs> Hit send, hit tweet, upload, whatever he's going to do, this is what this whole letter is about. It's the main issue that Paul's trying to patch up, helping the church understand that there is nothing else needed other than Christ. He also understands that a great impactful way is to deliver this message, this encouragement, this correction, this lasting change through this music format. He puts in a hymn inside a letter. This hymn is much more poetic than saying Christ is enough, but what he is really saying, Christ is enough in a way and in a style that goes deeper than the Apostle Paul from marketing slogan that says, Christ is enough. How do we respond to that hymn? How do we actually approach every challenge, every problem by saying Christ is enough? But again, I just want to re-emphasize to you this morning that don't devalue the praise and worship in our service. Don't see it as the warm-up for the preaching. It's as equally important as the preaching of the word. It's your personal opportunity to bring glory to God. It's also a time which affects you spiritually. The Holy Spirit can speak to you directly in this moment, bypass whatever pain, frustrations or logic blockers that you might have had when you walked into the service. That is the power of music. I mean, so much happens in, in the praise part of our service. So much happens in the worship part of our service. Again, it goes past your logic and can deeply touch you in your spirit. I mean, I cannot count how many times I've woken up in the morning and I've just found myself singing in my head one of the worship songs that we had sung last week. The lines just going over and over and over. It often surprises me because I don't see myself as a singer and my children tell me that I am not a singer. They post things on our family text group showing that I'm definitely not a singer. But as I said, it encourages me and it lifts my soul up, blesses me, singing good theology over myself 
you'd be amazed how good I sound inside my head. singing songs like, you are a good, good father. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I I just pray that this occurrence for you is just not a one-off, it's just not a random annual event, that it becomes a part of your week. That again, that you are so um, cycled into this idea of allowing the worship to affect you. Of course, in a word of caution, we must also consider what we allow our kids and ourselves then to listen to. What we've been playing in the background over our lives, it also has power. I'll take you back a little bit if you remember the old Y2K mantra. I was talking to a bunch of guys um, this week and they were reminding me that on that New Year's Eve, they were filling up their bathtubs full of water because the pretending, um, impending doom and gloom that was going to come, the world was going to shut down. And the mantra that was going around the months leading up to Y2K, particularly around computers, was garbage in equals garbage out. Be careful what you allow to wash over you. Wouldn't it be better if we all could just sing from the rooftops, Christ is enough. So my job today is to take you through chapter 2 of Colossians. In Colossians, this particular chapter contains important teachings about the nature of Christ and the dangers of false teaching. Paul encourages the Colossian church the Christians in that church, to put their trust in Christ, who he reminds them that Christ is the head of the church and he's the source of the church and he is the complete spiritual fulfilment that all of us should aspire to. So why don't we read these first couple of verses from chapter 2. And here he says, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea, which happens to be in Turkey, and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is... Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should, that your faith in Christ is strong. There's a lot of theology just in those few verses. I mean, Paul, let this letter that he's writing definitely conveys his shepherd's heart. He desires um, that they um, w- would care and have responsibility and that he, that he wants to help believers that he has never actually met. 
that he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be knit together in unity, in love, in community, that they become confident and understand the mysteries of God, that they know that they are in Christ. That's how the orientation of our lives should be. He goes on from verse 6 and he says, And now just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. You also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. In a real sense, Paul is talking about Christianity, he's talking about discipleship is both a journey and a destination. When we say yes to Jesus, we have instant transformation, yet at the same point, we are just starting the journey of discipleship. Again, there's two parts to this, this thing that we do. One, you have to accept Jesus as Lord and then you've got to follow Lord Jesus. And we can't and we shouldn't do that journey alone, but with the Holy Spirit and with the community of faith. Paul here is not promoting religion. Instead, he's completely focusing all believers and their attention to Jesus Christ. He's saying, build your lives on him. And in every way, as a result, your faith will continually grow strong in deep in the truth that you are taught. But what could Paul mean when he commands the people in this church to avoid empty human philosophies. See, the truth of our faith really is that it's a direct contrast to human philosophies. For example, if you allow me just to go a little bit deep for a second, this message, this epistle that he was writing would have been completely jarring to the social construct of the day because people esteemed Greek thought and they esteemed the Roman oratory. And so again, he's saying uh, those things are empty. See, the Greeks thought that the body was innately physically evil and only the spiritual world was good. Yet the Hebrew idea was that God, when he redeems a person, a whole person, it affects body, soul and spirit. I mean, the Greeks were shocked and confused by the idea and by the teaching that Jesus was human and also God incarnate. This was a massive clash against their own philosophy. I mean, Jesus, who 
suffered a physical death and then importantly is resurrected physically was this idea again to smash up against Greek philosophy. It was a huge challenge for Greek thinking people. But remember Paul saying, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So, I've told you about the context of that time. Well, what about the context of today? There are many competing and basically false worldviews that clash with the Christian worldview. Let me name some of them. What about the idea of subjective truth versus absolute truth? What about this idea of relative ethics versus foundational ethics? What about this common populist thread that's going around at the moment, even with some former believers, that I am enough without Jesus Christ, without the church, that I am enough? What about this thinking that's um, permeating across the world? We can see it um, in the news media every day that tolerance is the highest virtue. That, that tolerance is boundaryless, valueless. That rather than, dare I say, that tolerance is the least of all the virtues and a very poor imitation of genuine love. What about this human philosophy that it's all about my individuality, my, my, my truth? my ways, my experience, rather than this idea, I, I belong to a community, I belong to a church community, I, uh, which is, happens to be my family as well. And dare I say this empty philosophy of people deconstructing their faith versus people who want to construct a worldview, a Christian worldview. And what about this one that is so easily thrown around and sounds so sweet and innocent that love wins versus, dare I say, the love of God wins. Or even this thing, self-love, self-worth, self-esteem, self-mastery, they all sound so beautiful. But the reality is God's love wins. God's worthiness wins, God's esteem wins and the lordship of Jesus Christ is the important thing. Remember church, the emphasis of this whole epistle, this letter is Christ is enough. Nothing more added, nothing taken out other than Christ. I'd hope, I'd hope that this week that you take the time to Again, read and study Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 2, and read for yourself those words. Meditate on this week 
allow the worship to uh, soothe over you, not just on a Sunday morning, but maybe through the week. Start actually uh, declaring some of that good theology in those worship songs uh, in your car, driving, or whatever the context may be. The moment that you allow, allow your spirit to actually be refreshed by what that music can do. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning? I want to pray for you. Christ is enough. Could we dare say this is the great mystery? They were looking everywhere other than Christ himself. There's more to this Christian life than what you think. There's more discoveries. God is mysterious. The, 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 uh, the, the God's word, I, I just get mesmerized every time I open it about what I call the mathematics of the Bible. How the Old Testament actually speaks to the New Testament and how the New Testament speaks to the Old Testament and how stories from old actually mirror the stories in the New Testament. And how that so relates so profoundly to, to the days that we live in. I mean, this book is mysterious in its own right, but it's not, we don't need to worship the book. We need to worship the author of this book, which is Christ alone. Again, what a great worship song to be singing. But as I said, the most important thing that could happen today is that people accept Jesus Christ as their Lord. The next most important thing is that we all commit over again to the fellowship of Jesus as our Lord, which takes a journey and a discovery and, dare I say, a lifetime. So just where you're standing this morning, if, if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes and just reflecting in this moment because I just believe there's people here this morning that are saying yeah I want to I want to make that decision to accept Jesus as my Lord and if that's you I'm just simply going to ask you that while no one's looking around that you would just raise your hand acknowledging that yep I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and I want to pray for you and I see your hand over there, thank you. If you've raised your hand, I see your hand over there, thank you. If you've raised your hand, please, Lord, I'm not here to embarrass you but this is a pretty profound decision about a change of direction, about recognising that the way that I've been going is not the right direction and I want to change direction and accept Jesus as my Lord and start the journey of following him and following his ways.